Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Zach Bush, one of our most favorite guests. And he's coming to us from Charlottesville, Virginia, where his clinic is, and he does a lot of work and research. And uh, welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bush. Thank you so much for having me again. And just to remind everyone, if they don't remember from the last interview we did, Dr. Bush has that rare uh, op, uh, uh, moniker or health CV to have be uh, board certified in three separate uh, specialties. And uh, before he found the light and started uh, switching over to natural medicine, was a cancer researcher and is really just a wealth of knowledge on so many topics, not just health. So, but that's a topic for another discussion. So today we are gonna focus on something crucial that almost each and every one of us are challenged with, and that is hydration. And I was at a recent brainstorming event with Dr. Bush, Dr. Cowden, and Dr. Klinghart uh, in California. And, um, and they kind of reminded me of this and the importance of, of uh, this as an issue and then how to remediate it. So why don't you, uh, take it from there, uh, Dr. Bush, and uh, enlighten us about the hydration component. Sounds good. So yeah, a lot of uh, our discussion last time was around the gut, and there's this rising awareness in the entire medical industry, as well as in the lay public, around the importance of the in gut health for human health. However, even though this general correlation has been uh, you know, now kind of largely assumed, if not every day more proven, there remains a disconnect between our understanding of why gut health is so important and how it impacts so many phases of health and disease. And hydration, this topic we're covering today, is a huge piece of that puzzle. The obvious thing about the gut that we typically think of is when you eat, you absorb nutrients and you can build a body from that. You've got minerals, you've got amino acid protein building blocks, you've got micronutrients like calcium and manganese and selenium, and all of these are critical features of the gut and its purpose. But in contrast to that, now we're going to shift gears uh, away from the typical story of the microbiome and all of that and just think about the hydration piece and how the gut is the beginning of that. But then how do we, uh, you know, go from there? How do we move water from the intestinal lining, not just into the bloodstream, importantly, but actually inside the human cell? And so I would like to differentiate that at the beginning. When we talk about hydration, it's not about water in your body. It's about water inside the cells of your body. And that's two vastly different things. And I think many of us in our in our experience can remember the coach or the teacher or whoever it was in our young life who said you should drink enough water so your your pee is clear if your pee is clear then you're hydrated well that is unfortunately where even medical field remains stuck if you drink water and it gets into your bloodstream you must be hydrated and we do this with intravenous therapy all the time in the hospital obviously where we stick a needle into the vein and we pump a bunch of fluids in there and we think okay now the patient is hydrated because we put five liters of fluid into the blood vessels which is your total vascular volume and it's not unusual for us to put five liters of water into somebody's vein in just a matter of hours in the op in the operating room or in the emergency room and so we have this huge infusion into the bloodstream but unfortunately that does not necessarily translate into water inside the cell mm -hmm. and that as it turns out is really a crux of what we call the aging process as we age, we lose the ability to get water from the vasculature or the extracellular environment inside of our cells. 
if we could stay perfectly hydrated in the intracellular environment, our aging would slow down and if not reverse. And the reason is, is because water is the ultimate in the scrubber system. So the wa water is really the ultimate mechanism by which we get toxin out of our body, by which we clear the natural exhaust and kind of breakdown products in, within ourselves through the metabolic process of breaking down fuel or producing fuel. All of these things create um, potential toxins or oxidants that need to be cleaned out of the system. And nothing on earth scrubs as well as water does. Yes, indeed. And we've got about, I think, two-thirds of our body is composed of water. And, and of that, how much, what percentage is intracellular versus uh, extracellular? Yeah, it should be the vast majority, right? So if you imagine your, your uh, you know, we'll call it 70 kilograms or something like that, or call it 100 kilograms to make the math easy. So if you got 100 <laughs> kilograms and you've got two-thirds of that as water, somewhere around 66 to 70 percent, you're going to be in that 66 to 70 grams uh, um, kilograms of water. Of that, you've got only about five liters that's actually in the blood vessels and in, in, circ in circulation at any given time. A liter, uh, there's two and a half liters to the gallon, basically, a little bit over that. That's about 10 pounds. And so you're only looking at 50 uh, pounds, which is only, you know, half that in kilograms. You're looking at 20, 22 kilograms of fluid in the blood vessels. And the rest of the 66 to 70 is within the cells or at least in the lymph system around the cells there. So that's the, the crux of the challenge because there's so much confusion, as you noted, uh, with respect to simply drinking water as being the solution when that, uh, if not properly balanced, will actually cause you to urinate that out really quickly and not get it inside the cell. So uh, maybe you can describe, you, you're in the trenches, deep in the trenches, seeing many patients, some of, the, some of the really sickest patients, many of them preterminal, because that's one of your board certifications is hospice care. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if you could discuss what you've seen to hydration challenges that many people come to see you with. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the obvious things around hydration is, you know, the inflammatory processes. And so chronic inflammation is the accumulation of oxidative compounds within our cells and then ultimately within the bloodstream. And that is largely the result of the lack of interaction of hydrogen and, and that's within the water system. And so water is one of the main carriers of hydrogen. Uh, this it affects every single system within the body and perhaps most notable beyond the scrubbing part of this is actual fuel production. And so the human cell runs on ATP, adenosine triphosphate. ATP is produced by the mitochondria, which look like bacteria, but they live inside your cells are about 100 times smaller than a bacteria. And these mitochondria take the sugar and fat out of your your food system and turn that into ATP. And they do that through a series of enzymes. The, the respiratory chain is a series of enzymes in the wall of the mitochondria that is the one that will ultimately result in the production of ATP. Interestingly, the FIFO pump, this is a, a, a tiny molecular structure or, or machine that's at the end of this enzyme pathway. And this pump is what will convert one adenosine diphosphate to one molecule of adenosine triphosphate. And that last step of the way requires four hydrogen, two oxygens, and two electrons to achieve its goal. And you think about the structure of water, which is going to be a combination of 
two hydrogen for every oxygen. So you basically have two H2O molecules and their concerted electrons that are going to be necessary for that last step of fuel production. And so the clinical manifestation of aging and inflammation is ultimately one of a loss of fuel production at the mitochondrial level. As you get dehydrated, as you fail to get oxygen, hydrogen in the form of water inside the cell, you lose the, the ability for those mitochondria to be cranking out all of that energy that is not just you know, muscle energy. This is actually the energy that is used for cellular repair, replacement, and the whole anti-aging effort. So in the um, anaerobic respiration that occurs in the mitochondria, the ultimate electron acceptor is oxygen. And uh, I, I think the common conception is that that oxygen uh, is derived from the air that we breathe. But is it your uh, supposition that the oxygen is actually derived from the hydrolysis of, hydrolysis of intracellular water into hydrogen and oxygen? I think it must be. And this is a little bit contrary to the respiratory concept here in that we think of oxygen. But if you think of oxygen, it's just O2. And it's never in a good ratio with hydrogen. And so hydrogen is a very slight amount of the, the atmospheric uh, air around mm -hmm. us. And so uh, I think of respiration and ventilation, if you will, the ventilation of our lungs and ultimately our bloodstream, for me, is more a mechanism to turn, on, turn up the speed of the mitochondria rather than to, to deliver the oxygen. The oxygen, I believe, has to be in concert with that hydrogen and electron. That's not my belief. That's proven science. But I believe to get that ratio consistently, you got to be liberating that oxygen from water, not, not from that, which means you've got to be keeping your hydrogen or H2 uh, out of that in, a, in what we call elemental hydrogen state. H alone is actually usually missing an electron. It's had an electron torn off of uh, some surface uh, or some chemical environment around that. And so an H is very oxidative, whereas the H2 is actually profoundly antioxidant. And so we're increasingly recognizing this is most of this research is out of Japan around the H2 molecule. But the H2 molecule is now recognized to be one of the best selective antioxidants for the hydroxyl free radical. That was a mouthful. But what that means is that the hydroxyl free radical, which is the most noxious to the cell membrane and our ability to do cell maintenance, that can be scrubbed or picked up by the H2. And so in this way, the water you're drinking is both a delivery of oxygen and hydrogen in a nice ratio where you can release the O's uh, with their electrons to become O2, and you can release H's in the form of H2 to become a scrubber of inflammation and to be that substrate for the ATP pump. Yes, indeed. So I think the concept of molecular hydrogen uh, neutralizing hydroxyl free radicals may be somewhat dated. In fact, uh, Tyler LeBaron, who's probably the, the best expert in the US in this, is actually coming to, to visit me tomorrow. We're going traveling down to a conference. And uh, his, he, he explained to me that the, it may be more likely that, that the molecular hydrogen stimulates the NRF2 pathway, mm -hmm. and uh, which is radically important for uh, hormetic antioxidants, but also uh, for detoxification. And uh, so, so it's a big part of the equation. So, I mean, you can get it from the water, but you can also get it from a variety of ways, uh, supplemental. One of them, the microbiome, oh, yeah. the bacteria. Absolutely gut produce the vast majority of free H2. And so the, the H2 is, a, like you say, many sources uh, in our nature. 
Yeah, the the difference though is that the the, the microbiome you definitely need much from your microbiome, but the, the it tends to be a static, relatively constant production of yeah. hydrogen gas, and the the benefits, uh, like many benefits in in our uh, effort to attain health, tend to be better if you're they're cyclical. So in other words, if you're doing chronic ketosis. That may be good for the first few weeks or months, but after that, it's going to start actually hurting your health. So similarly, uh, this pulsing of molecular hydrogen can be very beneficial. It's difficult to do that with just intestinal production. Very so good. yeah, yeah. So um, the what percentage of the people that see you are actually dehydrated? Hundred percent of them. Hundred percent. Yeah, all of us are dehydrated. And the way in which we measure this in clinic is something called a phase angle, which you're very familiar with, uh, Dr. McCola. But the the phase angle is uh, measured similar to what you would think of an EKG, where you put the little sticky leads on your chest and you can see the electrical current running through the heart muscle. In this one, uh, we put a couple of leads, uh, one on your wrist, one on a finger, one on your ankle, one on a toe, lay you as flat as possible and keep you in a baseline respiratory state. And then we can measure the resistance and reactance across your entire uh, body, which is gonna give us a good idea of the impedance or the, and the ability of the, your single cells to uh, hold an electrical charge. And electrical charge across the single cell membrane is a very powerful uh, measure of your capacity in intracellularly hydrate to get water inside of your cells. And what we do routinely with every patient coming to our clinic is measure a phase angle. And in the years that we've been doing this, I've never seen somebody coming in with a sick complaint of anything with a phase angle better than seven. And so you've got, you know, ideal but, health. But, but admittedly, but, well, before we go into deep, more detailed explanations, it might be wise to give people a, a range of what the numbers mean, because I, I suspect that, yes, you have never seen anyone this dehydrated with the phase angle over seven, but that may be like one in hundred people, right? That's right. Yeah. So, so the one in seven or the seven is in on a range that I would say is between three and a half and 10. Mm -hmm. you, you, you've measured a couple people that have a better than 10, but in, in the general public, your bell curve is going to be between three and a half and 10. Death tends to happen around 3.5. Interestingly, all of our cancer patients tend to come in around 4.5 or below which is interesting because it suggests from a hydration standpoint, if you're looking at human biology as water or not water, cancer doesn't happen until you're so dry that you're nearly dead. And so in this way, cancer is not a disease that pops out of anywhere. It's simply a lack of water within the cells. You get an accumulation of oxidative damage, which will then do the DNA uh, injury and all of these other things that we think of as being the cancer process ultimately you're seeing and proving with the phase angle studies that, wow, you've got to be nearly dead. You've got to be down to a 4.5 to that 3.5 range. Ideal health up around 10, death around 3.5. Most of us in the U.S. are living between six and eight. And so, you know, and those are people in good health. So yeah, know, yeah, I would clarify that probably most really excellent health. You think, wow, there's somebody that I would think is a specimen of health and they come at a 6.5. And so that's why I'm so convinced that, you know, really 100% of us are running around really profoundly dehydrated. And that is speeding up our aging process at a lot of levels. So 
what is the connection between dehydration and the phase angle with respect to the numbers? So it's, is, is there like a direct correlation, the lower your phase angle, the more dehydrated you are? Direct correlation, for sure. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, if you've been following our science group's work, we've been working a lot with the tight junction. Tight mm -hmm. junctions are the Velcro-like proteins that hold cells together to create macro membranes. And one of the main tools that we utilize to measure the health of a membrane is what's called a tear, transepithelial electrical resistance. And what that literally is, is an ohm meter with microscopic uh, filaments on it so that we can measure inside or on the inside of the membrane, on the outside of the membrane, and get a sense of the resistance across that intestinal, small intestine or colon uh, epithelial layer. And that epithelial layer is acting as a resistor, if you will, just like the, the rubber on a copper wire. That plastic or rubber coating on the wire is insulating it so that the electricity stays inside the wire and isn't shorting out all over the place. In the same way, your membranes, your macro membranes, the barrier systems of your gut lining, of your blood vessel tree, the blood-brain barrier, all of these are creating an electrical gradient across them at the macro level. And what we've shown in regard to the hydration is that, you know, the higher that electrical charge across that membrane, the more likely you are to pull water across. And so that's at the macro, you know, gut membrane kind of phenomenon. Now, if we think down at a single cell, and so you've got, you know, over a billion cells form your gut lining. If you just take one of those cells or you go inside the body and you look internally and you say, let's take one muscle cell or one kidney cell and think of that cell membrane, which is a little phospholipid bilayer that keeps the outside of the cell separate from the inside of the cell. The electrical charge across that, when you're healthy, when you're up around a phase angle of 10 to 12, current estimates of that charge across there is above 10,000 volts. Imagine the, the, the electrical energy of a lightning bolt being held across a barrier that's just a few microns in space. And so it's, it defies our normal understanding of Newtonian physics. It's absolutely down in the quantum physics realm that a cell membrane that tiny is able to hold that large of an electrical charge. What builds that electrical charge is ultimately the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. and so we talked about the, the mitochondria cranking out ATP. Well, in the process of taking glucose or fat and turning it into ATP, the, the electron transport chain, Krebs cycle, all of these mechanisms of fuel production are creating electrons. And so you're creating this high electrical force within the cell through mitochondrial energy production. And then that leads to a gradient. And that high electrical gradient is going to pull water inside the cell. So in addition to being an indicator of hydration, it's probably one of the best indicators also of mitochondrial function because that's what allows the cell to be hydrated. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, I would say There's that no easy good test for that either. I mean, you can't do a blood test for mitochondrial function. No, exactly. You need an imp the impedance, I think, is far better. And so I think that in this case, you know, you might be as the listener, hopefully coming to the conclusion that you can't talk about mitochondrial health or mitochondrial production, fuel production without talking about water. Those two are absolutely inseparable.
That's what I love about you. You just drilled down into the basics. And, you know, what I've learned over the years is that that's where it's at. You need to address the basics. You start doing fancy stuff and supplements and all these exotic things and you don't address the basics. You're just not going to get better. Yeah, you can make some very expensive pee, right? Yes, indeed. So if you start taking a bunch of supplements, but you don't have that electrical charge across the membrane, you can't get the CoQ10 and everything else to transit into where it needs to be because you're lacking all of that intracellular commerce that should be being driven primarily by the electrical charge that's driving water that will pull the rest of it with it. So now that you've done such an excellent job at elaborating on the importance of this, the phase angle and hydration, I think we'd like to get into some more specifics. And I'd like to paint a framework because uh, I had heard of impedance about 25 years ago uh, when I actually developed a bioimpedance analyzer. And these are the same devices that can measure body fat. And it's one way. It may not be the most accurate, but it's certainly a way. They tend to be more accurate relatively. So if you measure it initially and you gain or we- gain or lose, you probably, it's probably accurate. Whereas the absolute is may not be quite so. But anyway, I heard about 25 years. I had no idea what the phase angle was. It's just a, something I could throw away. Didn't need it. That's right. Until I went to your clinic about, was it a year ago or two years ago? Yeah. Uh, it was about yeah, yeah. maybe a year and a half. So, and I had a phase angle that wasn't too impressive. I think it was like five, six. And I was really annoyed because I thought I held a healthy lifestyle. So I was really motivated and, and inspired and, and then uh, in about six months, I got up to six, six, two or six, four, or somewhere in there. It goes up really slowly. A lot, and a lot of the the top, many people will say, "Well, you know, is this something that can change if you eat or you're fast? Is this something? Why don't you go into how long it takes to change someone's phase angle?" Absolutely, yeah. And that's one of my favorite things about it is this is not looking at, "Hey, you missed some sleep, you traveled, you ate like crap for a week, and so your phase angle is low." The phase angle is is one of your longest projectors of kind of where is your biology today. The phase angle I currently believe is our best technique for really developing a sense of biologic age. And so you went from a 5.6 to a 6.4 over about a nine-month period. That sounds like, oh, that's some good progress. But, you know, I'm really looking to get to 10, and that 6.4 doesn't sound too good. And, you know, I know that you're always driving for that perfection. But, in fact, in just nine short months, on some very simple interventions, you really reversed your age by 10 to 15 years biologically by getting that phase angle up. The chance of you, you know, developing a chronic disease, something like cancer or the rest, just went dramatically down because you're getting water inside the cell. You're scrubbing the whole system out. We have all of these detox regimens, right? We have detox this, detox that. We've got detox teas. We've got, you know, it goes on and on. We're, we're all very aware that we have toxin accumulation in our body. My, my company's done a lot to work on the glyphosate issue and that. Mm-hmm. But in fact, all of that toxicity and the effort-free detox is ineffective if we're not getting water inside the cell. And so with your phase angle going up, now all of your detox efforts are gonna be far more potent and effective. And so we have to celebrate that slow shift that happens. Why is it slow? It's slow because it's literally showing you the mitochondrial potential and the reservoir of your ability to repair in 70 trillion cells. It's an extraordinary concept. You know, 70 trillion is a number that you and I and just don't run into in our daily lives. We can't really even imagine 
a billion, right? A thousand million is such an extraordinary number and that there's a thousand billion is an even a bigger number. And then you have a hundred of those trillions and you just, it's mind boggling, huge numbers. And so it, it's one thing to say, oh, I improved kidney health today by hydrating or I stopped drinking alcohol. And so now my liver is healthier. We're not talking about a single organ at all with the phasing. We're talking about what is a total global population in your body of 70 trillion cells? How do we affect that and what is it doing? And that's where the phase angle is a powerful tool. Yeah. And, and I made my improvement without understanding the importance of water. I mean, obviously, I thought I did, but I didn't. I didn't really understand the information you just shared. Yeah. I, I do now and have been addressing it. So I'm, I'm hoping the hydration will be an issue. I mean, we'll, we'll further get it up to seven or even closer to eight eight where you where your where your territory is well you're you're actually that's such an important point is you improved your phase angle without increasing the amount of water you drank mm -hmm. that's super important for your listeners to understand when we're talking about hydration it's not a matter of just drinking water because you're likely to just pee that out if you mm -hmm. don't have the electrical charge so what you did between your first one and your next one one of the major things and you're always doing so much to adventure into this um, but two major things that I know you did was one, you started to really increase the electrical charge across your gut and vascular membrane because you mm -hmm. started restore. And so that restore compound is helping support your macro membranes to pull water intravascular and then pass the vascular into the tissue so that it was available to the cell. The other thing that we've seen restore do is talk directly to the mitochondria to ramp up the reactive oxygen species production in damaged cells and to take the stress off healthy cell populations. All of that is shifting the electrical potential of the mitochondria to increase that electrical charge, pour more water inside of the cells. The other thing you did, which is very much married to that, is you reduced your EMF toxicity. Mm -hmm. You're coming, up with a, coming out with a great book soon around EMF toxicity. What is the relationship between hydration and EMF? This is a really cool subject. The tight junction has gotten a lot of the focus of our group, but the tight junction is actually there mostly to help maintain, or not maybe mostly, but one of its major roles is to maintain the integrity of the cell-cell juncture so that you can have a gap junction behind the tight junction. Gap junctions are extraordinary in number. You have tens of thousands of gap junctions between one cell and the next cell, literally tens of thousands of tubules. And these tens of thousands of tubules that run from one cell to the next look like fiber optic cables under electron microscopy. In fact, at the end of every one of these cables is a, a structure that looks just like the aperture on a camera lens. Those, those blades that come together to narrow or open up the aperture of your, your camera lens. And so that exists on 10,000 or 100,000 little tubules that connect one cell to the next. What are those things doing? What are those gap junctions doing? They are passing light energy, electrical light energy from one cell cytoplasm to the next cell without ever having to exit into that extracellular matrix. In other words, healthy cell population is one coherent mass of electrical energy that can pass through this electrical circuit board of the, the cells, these gap junction fiber optic cables. So what happened when, when you uh, were pre-restore and you were having from your environmental stressors of Roundup and glyphosate and all these chemicals, you know, other things that we consume that can damage those tight junction, gap junction systems or alcohol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, Motrin, 
these compounds are very noxious to the tight junction systems. And so, you know, whether you're, you're somebody like Dr. Mercola, who's been 20 years in the health industry, or a more typical consumer where you're getting challenged at a tight junction level every day, you can be sure that your gap junctions are down. When the gap junctions are disconnected, you're having a decrease in the coherence of the electrical energy, i.e. the frequency resonance between your cells. So now in the dehydrated state, you're accumulating toxin. In the dehydrated damaged membrane state, you're, you're having a lack of electrical energy flow. Now you put a cell phone into the mix, right? And now that cell phone or that Bluetooth, you know, thermostat on your wall or that wireless Wi-Fi router, router in your house, yeah. these things are putting out a huge electrical resonance. Your cells disconnected are at risk for resonating to the wrong frequency, i.e. not your frequency. And so this is one of the critical realities is that we can't start to talk about tight junction damage or dehydration without now mentioning on top of that this third you know, toxicity that we're exposed to, which is environmental frequency resonance that's non-human. Yeah, and you're, many people aren't aware that you actually head up a research team. I mean, you've got a, some really brilliant scientists that work in your lab. And uh, we talked about, and probably we'll start later this year, doing a research project to measure specifically the effects of EMF and then how to mitigate it with things like Restore or Molecular Hydrogen and some other strategies that you have. So, and to actually document it objectively in, in, a, in a scientific method. So yeah. I'm really looking, looking forward to that. And we'll have you back on when we complete those results, of course. That's absolutely it. So um, to, just to get back to the phase angle, <clears throat> Uh, the company that actually developed this was, is named RJL, and they, they're out of Michigan. And they did it, like, I think in the 70s or so. Uh, and the, the company the company uh, founder still exists. His name is Rudy. And because when I, when I was inspired through learning re, about the, the clinical utility of phasing, I started de digging deep into it. And uh, so it's been around for a while, but there's not many clinicians who understand or appreciate what you just explained. Virtually no one, including natural medicine clinicians. You're yeah. one of the only ones out there and have been using it for, well, for how many years have you been using it? Uh, since 2012. So six 2012. Years. So you've got six years of data to support your observations. And, you know, it's so crucial. And that, that that's what inspired me. And the numbers, I mean, just a tenth or two tenths is a huge movement. Big. So, yeah, it's really big. So. Uh, the, obviously someone can go to a clinic like yours and get your phase angle measured, uh, or they can actually go to RJL and purchase these, uh, these instruments. They're not inexpensive. They're not terribly expensive, about 2000 or $2,500, depending on which model you pick up. But th th I think on their site, they have a link and we'll see if we can put it into the article that have, that has a list of clinicians who use this. So you don't have to purchase one. And, and I would say that's probably reasonable because this isn't something that's going to change day to day. So yeah not like a glucometer where you want to know your phase angle every morning. That's the most boring data in the world. And so you can go in once, once a year, really, or mm -hmm. twice a year if you want a lot of data or whatever um, for more kind of interval things. But I'd say anything more often than every three months is a waste of your time because it's not going to move much in, in those spaces and time. So three month interval at the very you know maximum speed, twice a year is very reasonable, once a year is reasonable. But setting your intention for that hydration piece is a big, big piece of this puzzle. You know, I think I watched this happen with you, Dr. Mercola, is that you, you shifted your attention from 
Okay, yeah, the, the nutrients are critical and everything else. And when I saw you shift towards that hydration concept, all of a sudden you were able to quickly reorganize all of your thought processes to include the water piece, to include mm -hmm. the intracellular water. And I think that all of you as listeners, if you just start to live your life more aware of what your thirst level is, what does your urine look like? Peeing clear simply means that you drank water, it passed into your bloodstream and went out your kidney before it ever went inside a cell. Mm -hmm. And so peeing clear is not the same as hydration. What you would like to see is a, a, you know, a yellow tint to a good volume urine. If you're only peeing two or three times a day, a large volume, even, it's not enough, right? You need to be hydrating to the point where you're really clearing a ton. The kidneys are telling, right? So our engineering is always really fascinating. The kidneys are designed to clear about 55 gallons of, of uh, blood. liquid a day. Okay. And so you're filtering 55 gallons of blood slash plasma slash water um, every single day. And so now think about how much you actually drink. You might be drinking, you know, the average American, I think, is less than, than a liter of water a day. And so you're, you're drinking almost nothing, and yet your kidneys are cranking through 55 gallons trying to figure out what to, to kick out and what to keep and what solutes are important, which ones are toxins. And if you're giving it no water to work with, it's really limited in its main mechanism by which it's going to do detoxification and cleansing of the system. And so you've got to increase that water content. A good you know, rule of thumb, if you will, for water intake is if you measure the body in, in kilograms, uh, you'll find that one ounce of water per kilogram is a good goal for the day. And mm -hmm. so if you're a 75 kilogram, i.e. about 150, 165 pound uh, individual, you should be drinking around 70, 75 ounces of water a day. And that water doesn't have to just be plain water as notable right and so mm -hmm. herbal teas would certainly count as a as a, a water uh delivery system but when we start to talk about how to hydrate it goes beyond the need for just that free water you're going to have to address the electrical charge within the cell and so like dr mccall was saying he improved his phase angle without increasing the amount of water he was intaking he simply increase the electrical charge across the membranes. He was taking restore, he was reducing his electromagnetic frequency um, exposure through the EMFs of his household. He was doing all kinds of awesome mechanisms to improve the ability of his body to extract water from his diet and normal daily hydration. And we saw that phasal angle jump. And so that is something that we can all start to turn our attention to. But that said, how do we drink water? Mm -hmm. You want to cover that or? Oh, no, no. I think, but, but before we jump into there, let, well, I think you just did. You gave us the recommended doses because there is, I think that's important to understand that it's based on your weight or your lean body mass, ideally, yeah. uh, because that can be deceptive. Uh, but it's, you know, a child will look, obviously need much less water than a, than a, a large adult is the key concept here. So the, yeah, the key, now you can get water from vegetables, which probably, or even fruits, yeah. you know, you don't want too many fruits sure. if, unless you're. Good, good cyclical ketogenic, but uh, the uh, you know so that's a, that's one source and hard to measure, of course. But uh, I think the water you're referring to is not necessarily the water that is in the food, but the water that you're drinking. So tell us how to improve the water because this is something I just recently started. And interestingly, I just interviewed uh, Tom Brady's uh, personal trainer, Alex Guerrero, who co-wrote the book with him, TB12. 
uh, and an integral part of his philosophy, aside from the actual training mechanisms he taught, was to hydration. It's a really big part of his program. And he drinks electrolyte water all day long, like every day. Yes. So yeah. why, why don't you enlighten us? That's perfect. So yeah, the electrolyte waters um, are not new. We've been you know, reading science on electrical electric, um, potential and electrolyte water since the 1970s for sure. And the science comes around the ability again to build these electrical charges. And uh, the classic electrolyte in our American diet is sodium chloride or, or salt, and the table salt that we consume in such ridiculous volumes. Sodium chloride uh, has a positive charge around the sodium and a negative charge around the chloride there. That chloride anion or negative charge is one of the mega uh, potentials there for hydration. If you don't have that chloride moving across cell membranes, and, and helping to support and build that electrical charge across single cell membranes, macro membranes, and the mitochondrial environment, you know, all of these different levels of depth of the electrical charge, the, the anions or negative charge components of these mineral salts that we consume are very important. Of course, there's many other important sources for this. For example, potassium chloride um, is, is you know, a classic delivery system for chloride. However, potassium chloride can stop the heart at a certain dose. So, you know, it's a, a fine line between dose and overdose when you come to just about anything in nature. But certainly the electrolytes are one of these. And so the, the diversity of those, magnesium chloride and the other great chloride delivery system, and in many of these we were exposed to in nature by bathing, right? Not even drinking, but we used to bathe in fresh water sources and rivers and ponds, lakes, and ultimately in the ocean itself. And all of these environments of fresh water have an enor enormous amount of electrolytes suspended in them. Uh, pond water or lake water is much different than reservoir water, right? And these natural bodies of water have developed in relationship to the mineral in which these lakes and ponds would have naturally formed. And so I have concern about our drinking water because the vast majority of our drinking water now in municipal centers are from reservoirs, not from naturally occurring sources. A reservoir is an artificial environment now where water has been blocked up. There is no original or natural relationship between the water within the reservoir and the bottom of the reservoir, which used to be just soil and everything else. And then we flooded a valley with a dam and we called it a reservoir. We call it a lake and we drink from those things. So it's interesting to think that you know, almost at every level of the water system, we've diverse, divorced ourselves from uh, the natural state of affairs there. And so the electrolytes in our in our water should look similar to what we would have expected, you know, thousands of years ago, intact with a natural water system. And so fresh water is is hard to find now because, of course, we have an enormous amount of contamination, right? And so we have a lot of pharmaceuticals in our drinking water. Every every municipal water system has number one birth control pills. That's the hormones that you see in birth control, the estrogen and progesterone are extremely uh, highly delivered through the, the toilet system, right? And so you take a birth control pill or if you're taking uh, hormone replacement therapy, oral estrogen, progesterone for menopause, or if you're a male taking lots of uh, testosterone and all these things, that stuff ends up in your pee, which ends up in, your, in the toilet water, which ends up in the drinking water. And so we have everything from statin drugs to birth control pills being del delivered in high doses through our water systems. So that's brought into to favor things like reverse osmosis. And so RO water filtration systems for your sink, or now they have, of course, whole household RO systems, 
seems like a great thing and it is a great thing for reducing toxin. Mm -hmm. However, it pulls electrolyte out of that water. And so now you're really drinking very dead water if you're just drinking distilled or RO water. There's very little life in that that's going to help it interact with the cell membrane and ultimately rehydrate. And so that's where adding back in electrolytes to your drinking water becomes critical. There's a bunch of different products on the market uh, that are, are touting different you know, doses and everything else. And what I would say is an easy way to titrate your electrolytes is by your bowel movements. And so if you start to deliver, uh, develop loose stools, uh, when you're adding electrolytes, you're probably adding a little bit too much electrolyte. You might want to experiment with that. How much electrolyte do you need to add to your water before you start to note more frequent and looser bowel movements? And so uh, for some of you, you may take a tiny bit of electrolyte and, and see that bowel movement shift. For some of you, you might be adding you know, two to three times as much would be recommended on a label and still not having a change in bowel movement yet. And so uh, that's something to kind of monitor over time. Again, you... Well, let's just stop there for a moment, because one of the things that will also change the frequency and the, the looseness of the stool is magnesium, which isn't, which is a cation. It's not the anions you're referring to. So how do you, uh, I guess, reconcile that? Do you have them keep the magnesium level stable and then change the electrolytes? Magnesium is always going to be married to something, right? So magnesium... Mm -hmm positive charge, but you're going to have a salt on the, on the other mm -hmm. side of that. So you have a negative charge, something or other. So there's magnesium malate is one I use commons, commonly. Mm -hmm. malate one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Uh, magnesium carbonate. There's you know all these different forms, magnesium chloride, uh, and these different uh, shapes and sizes of the negative charge. So when you're taking a magnesium supplement, keep in mind you're actually taking a positive and negative charge thing, which is a good thing. So you're taking a magnesium salt when you take a magnesium supplement. And so in that way, you're always going to be uh, keeping things moving. Now, magnesium is interesting for a lot of different reasons from an endocrine standpoint, which is another one of my subspecialties there is endocrinology and <laughs> metabolism. And so in endocrinology, we, we, every time we think of magnesium, we think of insulin. And so insulin is one of the major drivers, obviously, of the drug the glucose goes in, in your body. And so to pull glucose uh, you know, out of the liver, into the bloodstream, then from the bloodstream into a cell, all of that is, takes insulin. But for every uh, molecule of insulin that you utilize, you're going to use up magnesium. So you need magnesium for any insulin um, motion. And so in this way, you can improve mitochondrial potential through magnesium uh, independently because the mag will help push the the insulin, which helps push the glucose into the cell, which will ultimately deliver into the mitochondria, which will turn into that electrical charge. So magnesium okay. indirectly is going to be charging your body from a negative charge standpoint. And you need it in the mitochondria to produce ATP because ATP doesn't come up by itself. It's bound to magnesium. It's exactly right. Yeah. 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 All right. Great. So I diverted you and I'll let you go back to what uh, you were explaining the different types of electrolytes to add. But before you go there, as long as I've interrupted you once, I can do it. Again. I'll do it again. I, you know, one of the challenges I had when I was practicing was uh, which magnesium do you use clinically? There's two, ba I mean, it's, if you use it intravenously, magnesium sulfate or magnesium chloride. Now the chloride, of course, has one negative charge where the sulfate has two. Is there a benefit from your perspective to using the chloride versus the sulfate? Because we need sulfur too, but I mean, what's your what's your take on it? Yeah, from an oral standpoint, I'd say the magnesium uh, chloride is a little too intense to take. So if you try to take oral magnesium chloride, you're going to end up with loose bowel movements really, really quickly. Typically, the ones used in the medical field orally is magnesium oxide. I don't mm -hmm. like that one. Magne mm -hmm. I would steer away from magnesium oxide, even though if you go to your doctor and say, I need magnesium, they're going to give you a prescription 
looking for magnesium oxide, not your best choice there. And so uh, I would say from an oral standpoint, I'd be either using uh, the MagCalm product, which is uh, mm-hmm. uh, using a non, non-oxide salt or use magnesium chloride uh, topically or use magnesium malate, which comes in a capsule. So yeah. magnesium malate is, is, is around the typical one on the market is 1250 milligrams, half of which is magnesium, the other half, which is the malate. Um, and so you'll get magnesium malate capsulated. Uh, if you want a liquid form, it'll be magnesium chloride. The cheapest way to get magnesium chloride is make it yourself. And so you just add one to one ratio of magnesium chloride flakes. They look like giant salt flakes uh, to a cup of water. So one cup of salt, to one cup of water mix those up together, it'll actually feel like oil. Mm-hmm. It'll feel very slippery and oily when you get that magnesium chloride into a high concentration. That is phenomenally good at getting magnesium in your system through the skin. And so you can put uh, you know that into the bath, for example. Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate in the bath. That's another uh, one of favorite mechanism. Orally, not a huge fan of magnesium sulfate, uh, but fantastic through the skin. It's, yeah, it's a, lo- it's a laxative. It's a, it's a potent laxative. And so yeah. the magnesium malate is nice because it's going to get you a high dose of magnesium delivery without that laxative effect. Yeah. And the malic acid is some people study biochemistry know is the Krebs citric acid cycle intermediate. So it's important again to producing uh, energy in your mitochondria. Uh, but I want to get back to the difference because you, you would just, you were just, uh, I guess, discussing the oral version. I was referring to the IV or in the case that you alluded to the transdermal, because I learned that you could make uh, a like you discussed, you can make magnesium oil topically. You can make magnesium sulfate oil topically too, just by taking maybe four ounces of water and dissolve, heating it up, got to heat it up so you can get a super saturated solution and putting in maybe seven tablespoons of, mag- of Epsom salts. Yep. And then you'll have a real super concentrated magnesium sulfate solution. I've been playing with it. What is your take? on which one is better to improve the hydration is it the sulfate chloride or it doesn't matter you know i don't think it matters too much i'm a huge fan of variety though really uh, you know instead of settling on one best one i would say you know like you mentioned the sulfate has a huge important role and in a number of different immune mediators and stuff like this whereas the chlorides are going to have more of that you know cell membrane electrical charge property to it interact with water a lot more aggressively um, and all of that. So I'd say, you know, all of the above probably has roles. M- magnesium malate, again, like you said, Krebs cycle support. And so you've got, you know, all these different mags. And if you look out in nature, nature never does one thing, right? So if you put magnesium in its negative charge state, I'm sorry, into its positive charge state in a pond, you're going to get magnesium sulfate, you're going to get magnesium chloride, you're going to get all these different salts that are formed around that positive charge magnesium in nature. And so I think that's probably the best approach is variety is going to win the game. To, one quick tool for the, uh, for the transdermal delivery is keep in mind that float tanks are an incredibly powerful tool. Um, if you don't have a float tank in your community, think about getting one in, in your local clinic and, and talking to your doc on these. A float tank will, in, in a single bath in which you're suspended, it has so much salt you can't sink. It's a pretty beautiful experience where you're floating on top of the water from the intense amount of salt. What they've dissolved into that single bath is 825 pounds of magnesium sulfate or Epsom salts. That's an extraordinary, you know, your bags and bags and bags of 40-pound of salt dumped into a single bath that you're now going to uh, go into for an hour. 
you're going to get such a huge magnesium load at the intracellular environment that you would take weeks or months to get anywhere near that through an oral delivery system. So that's something to think about if you're really thinking, I want to really maximize my hydration slash phase angle soon. Man, think about doing a float tank series maybe a couple times a month uh, for that first three months to really amp things up. And so that will be one big non-oral source. And then orally, you want to yeah. look beyond my guess is the the reason people so good is largely related to the amount of magnesium they're absorbing. No question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously the dark, you know, kind yeah, of the dark and lack of sensory deprivation experience. That's all positive and all that. But I agree with you completely is that you can't actually, okay, this is a pretty bizarre thing to say. I'm sometimes I throw things out, not really thinking with, without an appropriate disclaimer. This next sentence is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I would say at this point in my experience, you can't have a spiritual experience without water. You can't have spiritual awareness of your self-identity if you're dehydrated. Mm -hmm. And I already told you that we're all dehydrated. So what does that mean? I think we are all having a very big challenge right now, finding self-identity and our spiritual purpose and our spiritual awareness because of the dehydration itself. And so... It, you know, when you go into a float tank, it's not uncommon for people to have rebirthing experiences and have these high states of awareness that usually take years and years of meditation practices to achieve. You can achieve that in a couple of baths. Well, how is that possible? You're getting so much water inside the cell. You're increasing mitochondrial potential. You're detoxing. You're getting all of the chaos out of the environment. You're becoming more resistant to the electromagnetic fields around you. You're becoming you at the core level. And when you become you, everything, all bets are off. I mean, our, your speed of, of ideas and creativity, your potential productivity, your sleep quality, your sex drive, all of these measures of vitality are directly linked to this water issue, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you for uh, re-emphasizing that the magne the flotation tanks is just an outstanding uh, resource. Did you actually prescribe them to many of your patients? Yeah, yeah. We actually just expanded our clinic so that we can get uh, float tanks right into our clinic. Oh, that's great. So uh, I interrupted you a few times, and you were well. You're in the process of explaining other ways to add electrolyte to your water other than the an oral well, supplement. Right. Yeah, so other than magnesium, so you can get electrolyte powders um, at any natural food store and everything else. Some of them are liquids, some of them are powders. I don't have a brand preference overall. I would say, again, think about mixing it up. Um, I would see what your body tolerates. Some of the liquid ones are so concentrated that they can cause some nausea and a lot of people will get diarrhea or loose stools on them. If you do get diarrhea and loose stools by following the instructions on the bottle, then just back it off to maybe a third or a fourth of how much is recommended and find the dose at which your, your bowel is tolerating that electrolyte load. Important to note that you don't only want to drink electrolyte water, okay? And so you want to drink both free water and electrolyte water intermittently throughout the day. And by free water, can you be more specific? Is just say, say you had an RO system, would it be RO without anything added to it? Yeah, so it might be RO, distilled water, it might be a, a carbon-filtered tap water, you know, it might be your well water, it might be an herbal tea, you know, all of these things you could put into play as kind of inter interceding uh, with your electrolyte doses. When I'm going through a hydration protocol with my patients for three days, they'll do an intensive hydration protocol where they're drinking four ounces every three, 30 minutes. And, and so and they'll do that from about 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then they'll give their body a break. They can pee, 
pee off what they need to before they go to sleep at 9.30 or 10. And so they can give your, your, yourself a little bit of a break. But that 12 hours of intense hydration every 30 minutes, four ounces of water, every other one has electrolyte in it. And then every other one has a, a free water source, whether that's herbal tea or uh, a, uh, how would, how would, how would you integrate that with the free water that you get from eating food, like vegetables or fruit? I'm so kind of Again, you mentioned it earlier on and I was tempted to chase it down there. So I'm so glad you brought that back up. There's another magic thing when it comes to hydration that we haven't even touched on yet. And that is fiber. Mm -hmm. Fiber is a very unique feature of your vegetables and some of your fruits. Mm -hmm. And so fiber, it turns out is one of the most important mechanisms by which your your fruits and vegetables and ultimately your body are going to manage water around and there's lots of other micronutrients in your in your vegetables as well one of my favorite ones is silica organified silica is a very interesting nutrient that affects the microbiome uh, in a positive way but i think it really ultimately affects hydration inside the cell and so uh, you can get this from a plant called horsetail and so horsetail is not something you're going to put on your salad. Instead, you're going to find that in a supplement. Um, and horsetail is what you'll find if you go to the health food store and, and look up silica on the shelf. If you flip it around, it's from horsetail. You do not want the mineral silica, by the way. If you get mineral silica, which is the base of sand and all that, that's actually super oxidative and dehydrating. So you, it, it's interesting that that single compound of sand uh, that, that silica component has to be taken up in a root system of a plant and what we call organified silica, where it's been digested uh, through some organic process through the microbiome and then in a plant and then ultimately delivered to you through horsetail or some other plant that's rich in the silica. Excellent. So how, how would you integrate the uh, or calculate and integrate the amount of free water that's in, in these sources? Uh, yeah. You know, in some ways, your, your body can always use more. Right. And so mm -hmm. uh, we don't use a, a, a close tool for like pounds of carrots for this much free mm -hmm. water and everything else because it's actually going to be highly variable to the carrot right mm -hmm. and so if you have an organically grown carrot in your backyard that's been loved and cared for you're gonna have a very high fiber and water content whereas if you buy a you know those little weird carrots that are sold in bags now that look more like baby fingers or something they're like smooth and they have no skin on them and all of that that's a very dehydrated carrot it's a lot of the fiber has been removed because they've taken the skin off of the carrot and so now you have a totally different thing so remember that you know a vegetable is not a vegetable not a vegetable not a vegetable until it's been loved and cared for in the soil and so uh, i'd hesitate to say this is how much you get uh, okay. water content so, out of it so alternate between food, the more water you're going to get healthier vegetables, the more fiber you're going to get, the more fiber, the more water, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that reminds me to give you the opportunity to mention one of the things that you teach and are very fond of saying is that when you eat your vegetables, you want to pick it fresh from the garden because it's not just the nutrition in the vegetable that's key or the water or the fiber. It probably has a lot to do with the microbiome. So why don't you take off on that? Cause that is your specialty. <laughs> yeah, it does have to do with the microbiome in the end. So, you know, the, the reason why uh, your your food quality is going to be tied to your microbiome is many, but one of the main mechanisms by which this happens is that if you imagine now an ecosystem of bacteria in your gut, for example, or in the soil, but it's imagine, imagine an ecosystem of 40,000 species of bacteria, and now think about 5 million species of fungi, and now think about 300,000 species of parasites, and now think of over 10 to the 31 you know, uh, 10 million times more than our stars in the universe, 
viruses in our microbiome. So our microbiome is so vast and each of those species, especially in the bacteria and the fungi, as well as probably the parasite, are capable of liberating nutrients from our food in, in their own niche. And so one species of bacteria, think about maybe something like Clostridium, is very good at getting a very select number of nutrients out of your food and delivering those in an organified bioavailable method to your human body to utilize as a resource. And so as you feed yourself more and more complicated micronutrient profile by eating healthier and healthier, i.e. eating closer and closer to your own garden, you're going to have this explosion of microbiome because you're forcing it out of natural selection to say, okay, if I'm, if I'm eating a monoculture crop of just some version of corn and soybean and everything I eat, then I'm only going to need a few species. But if in every bite of food, I've got incredible fermented beets that have now got all these liberated micronutrients from the fermentation process. And those come into my microbiome and my microbiome now has addressed all those trace micronutrients and they have to feed to my body. You can quickly see how, you know, the more rainbow your plate represents as far as the colors and the nutrients that are in, the more you're going to force this microbiome diversification. When you, when, um, you connected with Patrick when he was doing the fast, you had mentioned alternating distilled water with with the uh, electrolyte water. Yeah, uh, it's it's for is it distilled or RO? Pretty pretty similar. Distilled actually is your best for detoxification. Oh really? Um, yeah, and so the distilled. If you're doing a three day hydration protocol, there's a theoretical benefit to the distilled. I I wouldn't preach that very loud just because I think the science on that needs to be proven out more thoroughly. But that's what yeah. I, I use clinically currently, just because the data seems to suggest that. Um, and, and it has to do with the fact that distilled water is the most most avid for electrolyte, right? And mm -hmm. so distilled water is trying to grab any charged particle out of its environment. And so that's why it's such a potent sponge for toxin is if you put distilled in, it's going to create an osmotic gradient across the cell membrane to pull stuff out of the out of the cell. So even if you're so dehydrated and your electrical potential, your phase angle is so low, you can't get water in the distilled water by sitting outside the membrane can create that osmotic gradient to pull, pull new, uh, the toxin. And what's the best way to get distilled water? Because typically when I encounter it, it's like for using your steam iron and it's in a plastic container full of BPA and distilled is a very aggressive water. So it's going to suck out that BPA and phthalate into the water. So how do you, how do you, advise patients to get distilled water unless i mean assuming they don't have a distiller yeah i mean actually fortunately a lot of the grocery stores are carrying them now uh, and so you can get distilled water from uh that is made in real time from some of these oh okay so you just bring your own, all that you just bring your own glass bottle yeah so you can get your own bottles and even if you're putting it in plastic it makes a difference right if you're if you're going through your water in two days versus buying something that's been sitting on a shelf for months at yeah, a time yeah. and have less toxin in there yeah, I would, I would definitely not put it in plastic. <laughs> yeah. No question. Yeah. So that's a, it's a good thing because these uh, multi-day water fast, and I don't know what your experience is, but it seems to me that's one of the most potent ways to detoxify. I mean, oh that's. My gosh, yes. Yeah, yeah. No question. Yeah. Yeah. So to do it the right way, I didn't really understand that. I just knew there was many mitochondrial benefits and anti-aging benefits, which is why I was doing. I was clueless as to the importance of uh, the value it had in detoxification. Yeah. So you so you have to pay attention to obviously the water, but also the binders to 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 connect to the toxins that are released. Do you have any favorites that you use? 
No, I, in fact, you know, during a fast, my favorite thing is the, is that water uh, hydration protocol uh, to do that. Really? So I'll do, you know, have my patients pick that up on day one or two and, and either do three to four days of, of that uh, hydration protocol during their, their fast. You now you're coupling that, you know, high state of uh, oxidative clearing from the fast itself uh, with that huge infusion of water. And if you do that in a fed state, obviously a lot of that water is going to be kept in the gut uh, just through the osmotic gradient of all, all the fiber and everything mm -hmm. else that's going to stay in your gut. Whereas in the fasting state, every molecule uh, that you put into the colon becomes a lot more bioavailable to the bloodstream. Wow. And do you find that uh, when they're on a multi-day water fast and they have an empty colon, that is a great opportunity to use coffee enemas or is that something you don't like? I do use coffee enemas. Yeah, mostly in my cancer patients and chronic pain patients uh, are the coffee enema folks. Uh, but I think there is rationale to doing that during a fast. Um, the one thing I have not promoted just because I, I still have had a hard time and I'd be interested to know your feedback on this is colonics. I, you know, I, there's so much conflicting data out there on colonics, uh, yeah. like hydration source, but it may be an adjunct adjunctive detox. I yeah, I think I think the water day fast is probably superior. And, and, you know, well, the benefit of a colonic is that you have an empty colon so that you can instill like beneficial bacteria up there. But if you uh, subscribe to the restore approach, then that really isn't a big issue because right. you can do it with restore. So, um, yeah, but I just I think coffee enemas. I can never do an enema unless my colon is empty and it is when you're fasting. So I said, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so easy, so easy to retain it. I, I just want to give people an opportunity who uh, I, I am. There is no doubt in my mind that this problem, this information has been presented by you. is going to be blown their mind and, and introduce them to opportunities that they were not previously aware of. And uh, I wanted to let them know, especially if you're a healthcare professional, that there is an opportunity to actually see you live and in person, because I never knew who you were until about two years ago. And actually missed the first part of your lecture because I said, who is this guy, Zach Bush? <laughs> I came in. I was so mad at myself for missing it because it was just extraordinary. And I just I couldn't get enough of you. And I, you know, watch all your videos and, you know, you're, you're a great teacher. And, uh, and the, this event that I'm talking about is in November of 2018. It's in Orlando, Florida. And you and I will be speaking there as will both is one of our mentors, Dr. Lee Cowden, and Dr. Dietrich Klinghart will be there, Dr. Daniel Amen, a lot of good, good people, uh, good people. And to me, if you are a clinician, and not just a physician, but a chiropractor or a massage therapist or anyone who is really seeking to optimize people's health, this is an event you really have to attend. So uh, I, I couldn't encourage you more strongly to, to come down and you'll have a, just a great time. It's just, a, it's just a magnificent event. So why don't you share your experience uh, with the ACIM event and, and the organization because you're really deeply involved with it. I'm so glad you brought up Lee Cowden and ACIM. Lee is um, a godfather of this field of health and, and integrative health medicine and uh, really love what he's put together. One of the real features, if you're a clinician out there that you're, you've experienced undoubtedly, if not on a daily basis, then certainly on a weekly basis, is a sense of isolation and loneliness. 
Uh, we are in a massive industry of you know a three trillion dollar healthcare system, and there's just a few of us out there banging this drum of integrative medicine every day. And you can start to feel lonely, and and in your isolation, just like a single cell that becomes isolated, you'll become damaged. And uh, the important things for ACIM for myself has been having a fellowship where I can come together with fellow clinicians that aren't there just to teach me, they're there to heal me. Mm -hmm. And they've done it through their care and concern. Uh, what a rare thing to find a group of professionals that have a family-like care and concern for one another. And one of the brilliant things that Lee has done is create a culture there where you see practitioners working on each other in the hallways of ACIM. When we're down there in the Florida hotel or one of these other kind of typical benign kind of event kind of feeling. And then suddenly you see a clinician who's crying and it has people with hands on that person, just reaching out to them and ministering to them on deep levels, both physically and spiritually and mentally, just like coming around somebody who's suffering. Each of us has been there. Each of us has found ourselves in some form of uh, pain or depression or loneliness. ACM is a powerful tool to get that community back around yourself. Yes, indeed. So <clears throat> please schedule early. Uh, you know, it, it's a be a number of months that you can integrate into your schedule, but uh, I strongly encourage you to sign up and attend. And you'll have an opportunity to interact with both of us directly there and Dr. Cowden. Uh, and and some other incredible clinicians, but importantly, if you if you are a clinician yourself, as Zach said, I mean this supportive environment, which is so crucial, and the community, which is a big focus of what Dr. Bush teaches, and it, it's somewhat well, I guess it is health, but it's a, it's a, it's a non typical focus of health. Just just talk a bit about community because I mean you have a really interesting perspective on it. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the sociolo sociologic studies that have been done, it turns out that access to community is one of the best predictors of longevity. And I think that's underappreciated in so many areas of our society. But if you look at the way in which we communicate now, we are really divorcing ourselves from community. The, the Twitters, the, the, the social media, you know, social media environment, even just text messaging. You watch a, a couple out at a, a restaurant now and half the people at the restaurant are not looking at each other. They're literally oh, probably 90 percent percent of them. Yeah. And so it's just embarrassing how disconnected we've become as human beings. And it's shortening our life for sure. And the ultimate you know, research that we do is around cellular communication. But why would physiology, why would basic science, why would our own engineering as human bodies be so reliant on cellular communication down at this microscopic level if the ultimate result wasn't to, to, with the intention of macro communication between humans? And we can see this in the political rhetoric that we see around each other you know, in today's state of affairs, regardless of what your political background or bent might be. I guarantee you, you can recognize that the rhetoric is getting more and more inflamed. Well, so is the biology of humanity right now. Inflammation is the state of affairs for our cellular biology, and inflammation is the state of affairs for our politics and social discourse. I believe those two are not accidental in their, in their correlations there. I believe they are causative. I mentioned earlier this bizarre concept that you can't have a spiritual experience without hydration being there. It, you could perhaps have a blunted one, but you're not going to have your ultimate optimal spiritual experience without excellent hydration. In the same way, you're not going to have optimal human life if you're not hydrated by personal and, and uh, relationship with humans around you. 
Well, thank you for uh, that brilliant uh, commentary on community, and it's so important. So, uh, and thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today, because I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people. And again, sometimes it's just is the basics, <laughs> you know, hydration, phase angle, the, like the impedance and electrical potential that your cells are able to generate and then measure it. So thanks a lot. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you soon. Likewise. Thanks for having me on, Dr. McCullough.